I am 11 years old. I'm a head taller than most of my classmates. I'm this gangly, awkward-looking thing, which probably comes as no surprise to many of you. If you've seen my son Gabriel walking around, I, he, I looked exactly like him, except he has way better hair than I ever did. <laughs> and I'm wearing these ugly 19, you know, early 90s glasses. And I'm with my friends, and we are on our way to an amusement park. I grew up in upstate New York, and the cool amusement park to go to in upstate New York is Darien Lake. That's right, my Buffalo people. And, uh, and Darien Lake has this roller coaster that I was absolutely scared to death of called the Viper. Now, mind you, 11-year-old James is not going to let any of his friends know that he has never in his life ridden this ride and has frequently stood outside the entrance of this ride while his parents rode it and they were in gross frustration because I cleared four feet at six years old and was too tall for all of the kiddie rides. (laughs) And so we're all talking about, yeah, we're gonna go on the Viper. And I'm like, yeah, of course we're gonna go on the Viper. And in my head, I'm going, I'm going to die. (laughs) But apparently my fear of self Ridicule, or my, my fear of public ridicule uh, was much greater than my own will to live. And so I decided on the bus up to this amusement park that I was going to, in fact, ride the Viper, even if it killed me. And so we get in line and I am nervous. I, my stomach is churning and I don't, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. And we get into, into the cart and we pull the old, old fashioned harness down over me and I'm like, this is it. It's been a good run. I made it 11 years, and it's now going to be over. And the way this roller coaster works is you come out of the gatehouse, and you make a turn, you go up this giant hill. And you ever notice that roller coasters, those hills are about 10 times higher than you think they are, and definitely 10 times higher than you want them to be. And there's this click, 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 which I'm convinced is the roller coaster designer's way to taunt everyone that's in the cart. You're like, you just made the dumbest decision of your life. And now you're strapped to me for better or worse. (laughs) Click, 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 and you get to the top. And it would have been merciful for the top of the hill to just simply be immediately into the descent. But no, that's not how this roller coaster works. There's this little lip. And I don't know why, but I I had this moment of just amnesia. And I, I was like, oh, that's not the hill. You come over this little lip and you go around this curve and then you go down the hill. But what's crazy is when you come over the hill, you see the entire park laid out before you with seemingly nothing but air between you and the ground. And we hit that hill and I, we go down and I open my mouth to scream. And that's exactly what happened. Nothing came out. And I remember my stomach was up, up in my ears and we hit the bottom of that hill and I realized I lived and immediately something happened and I was transformed and I became the most passionate lover of roller coasters ever. We went through that first loop-de-loop in every course crew and I was like, this is amazing! And 11-year-old James felt like he just stood toe-to-toe with death and punched him in the face. And we get to the end of that ride and I'm like, this was awesome. Why didn't I do this before? We get off and I wanna ride it again and again and again. And ever since then, I have loved roller coasters. And today, we're going to look at a group of people who were so certain that something was going to go one way, and it turns out it went something completely opposite. And unfortunately, unlike me, 
They didn't have a happy experience with it. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, and as you're turning there, I just wanna do a little bit of a review. We've been camping out in the book of Mark for a long time, but I hope that you're not tired of it yet because there are some amazing truths that we still have yet to explore and discover in this book. And I love that we're walking through it slowly because I think it gives all of us a sense of what Mark is doing from start to finish. And it's so funny because we're like, well, we, we kind of need to pick this up. We, we got to wrap this up before the end of the year. But then we get into these passages and we're like, but this is so good. We can't miss this. We can't skip this. And so last week we talked about Bartimaeus, who was a blind beggar sitting in Jericho. And he sees, or actually, <laughs> no, he doesn't see. He hears that Jesus is coming. And he's heard rumors about this Jesus that he makes blind people see. He makes deaf people hear. He raises the dead, they say. And Bartimaeus cries out, recognizing his need for mercy. And he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and he looks and calls him over and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Which is the same question he asked James and John. And we talked about that two weeks ago. And Bartimaeus' response is so clear and it's what Mark doesn't want us to miss. He says, give me my sight. And he says, then Jesus did. And immediately Bartimaeus followed Jesus. And as I thought about that some more, because they're now leaving Jericho and they're headed to Jerusalem. And Jericho sits about 800 feet below sea level. And they're going to Jerusalem, which sits about 3,000 feet above sea level. And so it's this long, winding, upward trek that would have taken them the better part of a day to get there. But Bartimaeus gets to go to Jerusalem for the first time ever to celebrate Passover, to celebrate the Jewish Independence Day. So it wasn't just Jesus and his disciples and Bartimaeus on this road. There would have been other pilgrims coming from other parts of Israel. This was a great feasting that was about to take place where they were going to celebrate and remember what God had done for them in rescuing them out of the hands of Egypt and saving them out of slavery. And the parallels are palpable because they're in their homeland, the land that God had promised them and they're going to Jerusalem, which is the holy city. And they're basically asking God, could this be the year that you help us throw off our Roman oppressors? Could this be the year that we get freedom from Rome? And so the air is thick with energy and nationalism and pride. And all four gospels record this event as we refer to it as the triumphal entry, or maybe some of you are more familiar with it as Palm Sunday. And we learn from John that the, the bulk of this crowd has actually come from Bethany, which is where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. And they're all there because they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And they're like, this has got to be him. This is the Messiah. Let's read in Mark chapter 11, verse one. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to the Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. 
And they brought the colt of Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father, we want to sit before your word and we ask that your spirit would allow us to ingest it so that it may transform our lives so that we can leave here differently than we came in, committed to a deeper, closer, more personal walk with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now this is a, a narrative, it's a story. Mark is simply recording for us what happens, right? There's no, there's no commands, there's no specific teachings, um, you know, that says thou shalt or, or, you know, do this and don't do that. But there are things that I think that we can learn and infer based on um, the situations and how people respond to the different parts of uh, this story. And so normally, I, you know, I, I don't like alliteration, um, but this one, it just sort of happened naturally. And so I see three C's here, all right? First thing I see is a cult, referring to the donkey. And then I see some cloaks referring to the people as they laid those out before the Lord as he entered Jerusalem. And then I see a cliffhanger. So going back to the cult, that takes place in, in verses one uh, through seven and, and specifically looking at, at verse two um, or just before that, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. Now, this is a direct fulfillment of prophecy that we find in Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Jesus gets the cult because he knows he's going to fulfill this prophecy. Every Jewish person from the time that they were born knew that one of the signs of the Messiah was that he would enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey someday. Jesus is trying to make sure that there is no mistaking who he is and what he's about. As a matter of fact, he uses the word curios when he talks about um, telling the people who are asking them uh, about untying the cult. He uses the word curios and says the Lord has need of it. I believe that Jesus is using this in reference to himself and he's stepping into his role of authority as he's headed towards Jerusalem to be crucified and eventually rise from the dead. And then ultimately having ultimate authority as he gives out the great commandment, which we find in the end of the book of Matthew. And so it's tempting to just kind of leave it at that and go, okay, so this is a fulfillment of prophecy. I get that. But then I just kind of stopped and said, well, wait a minute. How did he know that there would be a donkey there for him? Like, let's not just skip over that, which Mark seems to do, right? And all the other gospel writers, they just sort of say it as a statement of fact, which I think is interesting because they're just like, yeah, Jesus said there would be a cult and there was a cult. No big deal. Let's move on. But I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know that the supernatural is quite that evident in my everyday life, which is a little convicting to me. But it's clear that the disciples expected Jesus to be at work. I mean, as a matter of fact, their only question was, okay, so when we go in this village, like we know the cult's gonna be there, but what about the people who think we're about to steal it? Right, because that's essentially what they're doing. 
going to a cult. They're taking something that doesn't belong to them from somebody that they don't know. And think about just the work of the Spirit in all of that. So whether you believe that Jesus had uh, tapped into an aspect of his omniscience, or he was so in tune with the Spirit and in communication with his Father, which is what I would lean towards, given that he's an example to us and how closely we can be in communication with the Spirit and in relationship with the Father. So Jesus says that there's a cult. The disciples believe him and they go in faith and go get this cult. And then the spirit has to work in the people who are standing around them to go, hey, what are you doing? They're like, the Lord has need of it. And immediately they're like, okay. It's not like they had extra donkeys lying around. Like, well, if it doesn't come back, it's fine. Right? This was their beast of burden. This was something that they would have relied upon. And yet they trusted that the disciples were who they said they were and that Jesus was going to use it and bring it back to them. And as I thought about this, I thought, huh, how normal is the supernatural in seemingly mundane little areas of my life? And what I love about our church family is that, you know, Mo shared about uh, Pastor William as he was here last week, and, and we raised $20,000, and when Darren put that out on Facebook that it had been covered and then some, I was like, of course it was, right? <laughs> I remember when I first showed up here five years ago, it's their second Sunday in this building. We did not have the nice comfy chairs yet. And they would throw out these, you know, um, projects. And I'm like, how in the world is this many people going to come up with that kind of money? And then it did. And I was like, what? Lord, I'm thankful you led me to this church. And it was just like one shocking thing after another. And, but now I've gotten to the point where I'm like, yep, of course God did. Now, this does not mean that we presume upon God or that we make demands of him, that we expect him to do what we ask him to do. We're still grateful, we're still thankful, but it's become kind of normal for us, right, around here. There's an inherent danger in that, though, I think. And the danger is that when the only time we see the supernatural is when we gather with our church family and don't see it in our everyday lives. And the Lord's really convicted me about this lately. My daughter uh, is away with the world race. And one of the things that they do is they have these days where they just call them ATL days. And ATL stands for ask the Lord. And they just go away quietly and they just individually on their own, they just ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do today? Who do you want me to interact with? So simple, right? And scary at the same time, because what if he doesn't answer? And then they come back together and they say, what did the Lord tell you? And they each share and an Inevitably, they all share something very similar and the Lord blesses. And God's challenged me. Why don't you just have an Ask the Lord day and say, Lord, who do you want me to have lunch with today? Who do I need to text an encouraging word to? Who do I need to let them know that I'm praying for them? And so I challenge you this week. I'm giddy with excitement because I know he's gonna answer. He's gonna bring someone to mind. And how cool it would be to receive one of those texts and that's God letting you know that he sees you. So this isn't Paul, Mark's main point of this passage, but I don't want to gloss over it. How normal is the supernatural in your everyday life? Do you live every day expecting Jesus? Do I live every day expecting to see Jesus? And what's interesting is that it's not in these big, grandiose ways Sometimes God loves to reveal himself in the most mundane of details, like a donkey tied to a door that he needs to ride on to announce that he's the Messiah. 
So not only do I see a colt, but I see some cloaks. Verse eight, it says, and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. These people were so spun up. They were so excited that God would bless them with the honor of being alive when the Messiah arrived in Jerusalem. This is a big deal to them. So much so that they're overcome with gratitude that they're taking off their own um, property, their own garments, and laying them on a dusty street for an animal to walk over in reverence of the king. And what's interesting is that Jesus knows that they've missed the point, but he doesn't stop them. And it's as if Mark is telling us, yes, you're right, he is the Messiah, but no, he's not the political figure that you're looking for. He's not going to come and overthrow Rome. His kingdom is not physical, it is spiritual. It's totally different. It's not reliant on the power structures that you see in the world today. Their cry to him as blessed is he who comes in the, on the throne of our father David, that is a, a messianic reference and it's very similar to the one that Bartimaeus used just one chapter ago. And Mark is using those things and, and juxtaposing them and, and showing us that, that Bartimaeus got it right. A blind man could see more clearly than everyone else who couldn't or who, who weren't blind physically. And this really harkens back to the Jewish people and their cry for a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. They missed the point. That's what Mark is driving at here. He's like, they've missed the point. And it's easy for us to perhaps sit in judgment of them and like, how could they have missed this? He raised someone from the dead and all of this, this other stuff. But how many ways do we miss the point of who Jesus really is? How many times do we can we be so convinced that we know who Jesus is and how he should behave in my life that I miss who he really is and how he wants to change me? You see, the Jewish people were so convinced that they knew who the Messiah would be and how he would behave that they missed him. N.T. Wright writes, the longer you look at Jesus, the more you will want to serve him in this world. That is, of course, if it's the real Jesus you're looking at. Plenty of people in the church and outside it have made up a Jesus for themselves, and found that this invented character makes few real demands on them. He makes them feel happy from time to time, but doesn't challenge them. Doesn't suggest that they get up and do something about the plight of the world, which is, of course, what the real Jesus had an uncomfortable habit of doing. Does the Jesus you follow make you uncomfortable? He should. Makes me uncomfortable. I don't like it. First six months I met with my mentor, I would go and I knew it was good and I needed it, but I did not want to answer the questions I knew that he would ask me. The things that he would pick at that I knew needed to be picked at because there was work that the Spirit wanted to do inside of me. There were blind spots that I had that I didn't even realize and there were things that needed to be sifted out of me. There are things that need to be sifted out of you too. And if your Jesus doesn't make you uncomfortable, you might want to take another look and see if you've missed him. Jenny Allen writes, we have come to treat God as if he exists for us rather than us existing for him. It's as if he's supposed to fix our plans rather than our only plan 
being to know him and follow him. I mean, it's easy to do. His own disciples missed him. In what ways have we created a version of Jesus so that we don't really have to surrender? And I think that's the key to what Mark is saying here. Is they wanted a political figure. They wanted someone to come rescue them from Rome. Get these Romans out of here. Establish your kingdom, Messiah. So we can be in charge. So we can rule the world. We are your chosen people. And if you think about that idea of surrender, it's all throughout this passage even. The disciples had to surrender to the command of Jesus to go and find the cult and trust that it would be there and everything would happen according to what he said. The animal itself surrendered. It's a cult which had never been broken. Nothing had ever been set on its back. And it surrenders to its creator for the privilege of carrying the king. And Jesus himself doesn't call us to surrender without first doing it himself. And he's moving to the cross. Francis Chan writes, we often forget what an honor it is that God would offer relationship. We can get so accustomed to people begging us to follow God that we forget what a miracle it is that we are invited. Now, this is not just a one-time thing, this idea of surrender. It becomes a habit, a discipline, a daily getting up and saying to myself, Lord, today it's about you and not me. Now, we're not here to make you feel bad. And I'm, this, message is, this passage has been preaching at me all week. There's grace for where you're at. Jesus didn't kick James and John out for their request. If you remember a couple weeks ago, James and John came and said to the Jesus, oh, we want you to do something for us. And Jesus is like, what do you want me to do for you? Which is the same question he asked Bartimaeus and their answers are totally different. And James and John said, we want power. When you come into your kingdom, please allow us to sit on your right and your left hand. <coughs> and Jesus politely de declines their request because he's like, you have no idea what you're asking for. But he didn't say, you're out of the herd. That's a um, Ice Age reference for anyone? No? Okay. Sorry. It's obscure. I know. I'm sorry. That's... He didn't kick them out. He didn't tell them, you know, he didn't, they were still one of the three closest disciples to Jesus. And eventually they would get it and become leaders in the early church and have powerful impact. They would eventually get it. There's no guilt. You are where you are. You know, as we were kind of uh, meeting and discussing, we, we gather as, as a pastoral staff, we, we talk about the sermons and then help one another out. And it's been just a real blessing and a, and a treat. But, you know, Darren and I were commenting. It's like, well, I look back on my life and, and yeah, there are things that I wish I could have learned earlier, but I don't know how. I don't know how that would, would have happened. My journey has simply been a series of God peeling back the layers of my heart, revealing what I needed to see that I couldn't see before and asking me to give it over to him. And that's what he's asking you today. Ask, allow him to take the next layer of your heart and give it over to him. I mean, at a basic level, it's simply asking and listening to what the spirit is wanting to do in you. So what about when life's not fun? What if you hate roller coasters? What do you do when it's hard and you don't understand what in the world God is doing? 
I would encourage you to ask yourself this question. What if the worst thing that you're afraid of, let me back up. What if the thing that you're most afraid of happening happens? The thing that you're begging God not to allow to happen. What if it happens? What if that thing that you're most afraid of is what is necessary for God to do the work in you that he wants to do? Maybe you feel like you're in the ocean and you're treading water and you're barely keeping your head above water. What if God is asking you to allow yourself to sink and discover that you can breathe underwater? That that circumstance in your life is nothing and he just wants you to give it over to him and that you can get through that dark, tough time and not just come out the other side and survive, but thrive. What if he's asking you to go through this difficult journey so that someday he can bring your path across someone else who desperately needs to hear what he's telling you right now? Is he worth it to you to do that? Maybe you're waiting for God to intervene or you're wondering why God has allowed something and instead of dwelling on that, on that ask the Lord, what do you want me to learn? What do you want to sift out of me? I've really been meditating on the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the Old Testament. And if you're familiar, they were asked to bow down to this giant statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and they refused. They were Jewish young men who believed in God, and they refused to bow down the statue. And Nebuchadnezzar got wind of this and was very upset, and he ordered a fiery furnace to be heated seven times hotter because of their insolence. He was going to throw them in it. He was going to murder them because they refused to bow down to his statue. And he brings them before him and he says, why won't you bow down? And he says, then what God will save you out of my hand? And their response is so beautiful. He says, our God is able to save us out of your hand. But get this, the next line, and don't miss this, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow. Yes, God is able to rescue you out of whatever difficult circumstance you're facing right now, but can you rest in him even if he doesn't? Don't miss the point. And I'm succeeding and failing this in my own life. I'll tell you the success first, and then I'll tell you the failure. The success is I was recently involved in a, um, an injustice of sorts. It was gonna cost me thousands of dollars. I don't have thousands of dollars. I don't know if you know about this, but choosing the pastoral part-time gig is really not the path to affluence, <laughs> which is totally fine, because I love what I do. But I was like, Lord, what, how, how did, like, why did you let this happen? And God said to me, can you trust that even if I make the situation to where you are completely unjustly treated and it's gonna cost you thousands of dollars that I can provide it. I suppose. But then we're moving along and I'm, I'm, I'm in this process and I'm trying to get justice. And I want them to admit that what they did was wrong and pay for it. And God tapped me on the shoulder and he said, hey, have you stopped to ask me what I want in this situation? And I was like, no. Because don't you want what I want, which is justice. He says, I don't want to give you justice in this. Okay. 
Now, on the other side, there's an area of my life that the Lord has invited me to step into that I'm not succeeding at, and that is the area of healthy living. I know that may come as a shock to some of you. The Lord's invited me to step into being more healthy and honoring him with my body. And I'm like, but Lord, why would you create Mountain Dew if it wasn't there for me to turn to when I'm sort of feeling bad about myself? In the words of the great theologian James Corden, when it comes to healthy living, I have good days and bad months. I recently saw a comedian who was talking about his friends. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're addicted to running. And so he's like, so I went running with them. And about a mile in, I'm like, so when does the addiction kick in? <laughs> like usually things that are addicting happen faster than this. And that accurately describes my relationship with healthy living. But this week, I'm doing a little bit better. But it's very much like I'll get to the, the front of the line, you know, I'll get ready to sit down and lock myself into that harness and the point of no return. And then I'm like, nope, nope. And I'll just get out and go all the other side. Has that ever happened to any of you? Just, just skip the ride. So I'm back in line again. And saying that out loud, just like, Ugh, right? All this like, guilt and shame. And I know that's not from God, that's from the enemy. But that's an area that now I'm going to choose to trust and step into that, that the life God has for me can be better even without those unhealthy things in my life. So what would it look like if we all got on the ride and we all pursued the real Jesus together and we started sharing stories and our small groups became places where God moments overtake the entire discussion because he's doing incredible things even in our seemingly everyday ordinary lives why do we just assume that the miraculous and the supernatural happens overseas? I am choosing to reject that. And I believe that God wants to do miraculous things right here in Middle Tennessee, inside each and every one of us and the people that he brings across our sphere of influence. I'm tired of being excited about what's happening elsewhere and not expecting God to do the same thing here. I wonder if you're tired too. I hope so. So what is the Spirit gently tapping on your heart right now to do? What is something, even right now, he's bringing it to your mind saying, I'm asking you to trust me in this. Will you do it? So not only is there a colt and some cloaks, but I see a cliffhanger. And this really is just a setup for next week's message that you'll have to come back for. But verse 11 says, and he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. This is an interesting detail that's not included in the other gospel accounts. And I think it's Mark's intention to, to, to demonstrate to his readers that that this arriving in Jerusalem is not the climax of the story. I mean, if this were a movie, this would be a terrible way to end it. Right? You have this Messiah savior figure coming into Jerusalem is about to overthrow the big bad Romans. <coughs> and he gets off of his colt, goes into the temple, looks around, doesn't say anything, and leaves. Right? There's, no, there's no miracle. There's no speech. There's no gathering of armies. Mark gives us a clue that this is not 
what you thought it was going to be. But if you hang with me, it's going to be better than you ever imagined. Let's stand. May you embrace surrender and discover every day more and more of the real Jesus. And may you accept his invitation to let go of everything and follow him into the depths of himself and his mission. Let's pray. God, we are your people. We exist to serve at your pleasure and what an honor it is. Forgive us for the ways in which we take that for granted. May we leave this week emboldened to test you, to try to taste and see that you are good. May we be encouraged as we go throughout our week, give us opportunities to impact those for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.